All right. Uh, Matthew 24. We're on page 10. For those who will be listening to this online. Matthew 24, verse, starting with verse 36. Would you like me to read I'm that slow. Um, why don't you read verses, uh, why don't we start with Christian here. Okay. And you read verses 36 to 44. Okay. It says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day of Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Question, is God a thief? Why does Jesus use a, a metaphor of a thief to describe the second coming? To express that it will be unexpected. Okay, to express it will be unexpected. Um, is there possibly any other reason? Doesn't it tie back into the verse that says you must first tie up the strong man before taking his possession? Well, that's an interesting one. Uh, interesting connection. Uh, what do you think the connection might be? Well, from that previous verse, it shows us that, that Satan was the one that abducted us. And so Jesus coming back to earth to tie the, down the strong man before claiming us back. And in order to do that, he has to come unexpectedly, maybe? I mean, if, of course, God will always win whether the devil expects it or not. But I don't know. It's just that if he doesn't know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I have an additional comment. Is his second appearing is unexpected for those who are not looking for him. Right. Paul points that out, doesn't he? That uh, it's only a, a thief. It's, the day of the Lord is only a thief, like a thief for those uh, who aren't ready. Um, but he says, you are watching and waiting and ready. Even the last, it's so hard to watch all the time, you know? Yeah. Wow, can you be surprised for us too? Um, I think we'll all be surprised. I think everybody, even who's watching, will be surprised at he's now. But um, here, the reason I ask that question is because uh, I grew up in a generation that was taught kind of Jesus as a thief in a, in a little different way. Uh, you're, you've all played the game hide-and-seek. Right. And that, that call that the person who's it makes, uh, here I am, ready or not, that, that used to be the way we were taught about Jesus coming, you know, waiting for us to be all preoccupied with everything going on around us, and then Jesus shows up. Here I am, ready or not. And some of us are caught before we quite make it to home base. And, and that scared a lot of my peers. A lot of my peers gave up 
and left the Adventist Church in part because of that there were some other teachings that that really painted a, a negative picture of God that also led them to abandon the faith. Um, is that really the way it's, it is? is? Is Jesus trying to catch us, trying to knock as many people out as possible? What what is going on? What is the second coming? Um, think, to be like. I think the point of that, of us not knowing the hour, is just that we should live our whole life as if Jesus is coming tomorrow. And it's not like, oh, I can live a bad life and then wait till he's about to come and then try to change. It's that we always need to be preparing for Christ's coming so that when he does come, even if it is a surprise, we're ready. And not just preparing on our part, but allowing him to reparent us. Okay, allowing him to reparent us. That's a, a term that isn't used very often. Yeah, it, it, it has to do with our focus, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. What, what we're focused on. And if, if Jesus were to announce with the megaphone to everybody in the world, I'm coming back in a week. You think of what would happen if everybody believed. Uh, they'd, they'd line up and say, oh, please, we, we want to be ready. We want to go to heaven. But where would their, what would their motive be? Oh, this week, please. I need more time. I need more time, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they might be begging for more time. Um, but what would their motive be at wanting to get ready? It would be more extrinsic. It would be extrinsic, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, motivated by the thought of him coming, the fear of being lost, the fear mm-hmm. of, of what awaits them. And does that make good character? Does that actually save us? It wouldn't be a healthy relationship. <laughs> In the sense that like, you have someone announce that they're going to come and then they're getting ready and like trying to clean up the house before they come and make sure they're like a good host. But in a sense, a better relationship would be someone that's always... Something like uh, if your great Aunt Agnes announced she was coming to visit and she gave you only a little warning and your house was a mess. Um, you can imagine the chaos that would ensue as everybody was trying to helter-skelter, especially if she was no one to be really persnickety uh, and, and very... Uh, judgmental and and would come in and and start scrutinizing boy your house is a mess you would you would probably start throwing things in the closet and uh, in the drawers and and hope she didn't start snooping uh when she came i mean most people wouldn't but uh, there are people who do (laughs) Uh, would it really clean up your house to do that what's going to happen when she's gone it's going to become a mess again. So, what needs to happen? Why, maybe we should ask this question. If, if really what we're playing with God, and I, I'm going, jumping back down to the other model, if what we were playing with God is hide and seek, he could have come back a whole long time ago, couldn't he? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I used to hear it said when I was growing up that... Uh, God is going to come back whenever he wants. And that there's, there's no, there's, there's no, nothing that uh, needs to change, nothing needs to climax or happen before he comes. Um, and it's just arbitrary. Do you think that? Mm-hmm. 
Christ Object Lessons, Christ Object Lessons, page 69, it says that Christ is waiting with earnest desire for the manifestation of his, himself and his church, and when his image is reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Yeah, um, let's unpack that a little bit. Is this, um, I think the way Adventists traditionally have read that is we have to be perfect before Jesus comes. Is that, is that what it means? And what does it mean to be perfect? It's your father. He's, it's hard. Maybe we need to revisit Matthew 5. Let's go back to Matthew 5. 45. Actually, 43. And uh, Carlos, we're going to read counterclockwise today. 43 to what? Uh, 43 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans do so? Be ye, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What's the context of this ver- these verses? When, when we look at a passage, we need to ask what the context is. What is the context? We could refer to the previous verses, the preceding verses, mm-hmm. where Jesus is what asking is? us to uh, pray for them, which well, I can read it. Yeah, the, the, what he says is the law of retaliation. Um, but what is the whole... What is Matthew 5 all about? The Beatitudes. As the Beatitudes, what else? He's more extending the law. He's, ex- he's explaining the law. The, the heart of the law, the, the internal aspect of the law. He's, he's transitioning his hearers from an external kind of obedience, which is governed by the law externally to me and, and imposing itself on me, to an internal kind of law where you don't even want to do those things. And then he climaxes that law with this statement about loving your enemies. And he says, how are you even better if you, do, if you don't love the Gentiles the way you love other people? In other words, you only love those who love you back. Mm-hmm. If that's all the love you do, that isn't keeping the law. Really, the people who really keep the law love their enemies. And that's in the context in which he says, be perfect. Now what is it that is going to perfect our ability to love our enemies? Well, perhaps in the ways that we respond to them, because Jesus, I'm, I'm, this, this subject here is making me ask the question, okay, what, what is Jesus' example of loving his enemies? He didn't necessarily go out of his way to 
express kindness to them. He simply didn't. He just chose to respond in a certain way. He didn't. Does that make sense? How, how did Jesus? How did Jesus treat his enemy? How did he treat Judas? He tried to forgive him. Even the people who crucified. He Jesus kept. He kept Judas right beside him. Remember when Jesus sits at the Last Supper. Uh, John, the beloved disciple, is on one side, and Judas is on the other. And Jesus, my understanding from Desire of Ages is, Jesus knelt down and washed Judas's feet first, giving him the respect of the honored guest. I mean, you can't, you can't do more than that, can you? Uh, and Ellen White suggests that as he washed Judas's feet, he poured out his love on him. He, he pled with him mentally, please don't do what you're about to do. And, and when Judas came in after, at, at the, at the, near the end of his trial, he comes in before Caiaphas and he throws his money down and he says, I have sinned, O Caiaphas, and I have shed innocent blood. Jesus turned and looked at him with the same look that he had looked at Peter earlier when Peter denied him. That compassion, that pity for Judas. That's how Jesus loves his enemies. Now it's true he didn't hand himself over to them and say, do with me what you want. He was, he was always, he was always, but he was always serving their eternal best good, their best interest. Um, and you can read Matthew 23, the woes on the Pharisees. Jesus spoke those with tears in his voice. And you can tell that by the end of the chapter. Uh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have stoned the prophets uh, sent to you. How often I would have gathered your children together as a mother hen does her chicks. But you would not. And then on the cross, as they're nailing him to it, what does he pray? My father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right. He forgives his enemies while they're kneeling him to the cross. What is it that's going to bring us to that point? Only Christ. True. But what circumstances? Well, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Trying circumstances. Trying circumstances. What about persecution? What The Bible portrays that the last days are going to be days, yes, of marrying and giving in marriage and all of those things, but it, the last days are going to be days of intense attempts to control people, to use power and force over people, and to, to injure people and to, per, and to punish people who don't line up to our way of looking at God. And it's going to be very, seem to be very religious, okay? But it's going to be a religion of force and tyranny. What better opportunity does that give us to love our enemies? Without that, we never really come to the point where we can love them. You know, I mean, how many enemies do you have right now that you can count? Probably maybe one, maybe two. At least one. At least one. <laughs> God forgive me. 
We don't have very many enemies, do we? No. But the time, Bible speaks of a time when that's going to be. And then, that's when the crucible is on. And I really believe that until we love our enemies, we can't claim any other goodness. And we're not good when we love our enemies. There's only one way to love our enemies. And that's to borrow God's love. That is to rest in his love, constantly believing he loves us, and to dwell on how much he loves our enemies, and then to look at them through his eyes and to love them as he would. It's the only way that we can develop that love, and it takes practice, to, to really focus on his love for us, first and foremost, because if we don't have that, we can't love our enemies. And then to focus on his love for them. And it quite levels us. It quite humbles us because we realize the playing field is level. God loves our enemies as much as he loves us. Where does that leave us? We don't have anything superior over anyone. And I think that's why Jesus could say at the end of his life, this is eternal life that they know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's only through knowing him that we can experience his love, getting his love in our hearts. And it has to be experiential. It can't be a different kind of process, a merely intellectual, uh, tacit belief that is rests upon fact rather than upon experience. To really know in the Bible is experiential. It's an experiential word. So... Can you ask a Greek? Um, actually, uh, in Greek, it's oida, which would be the experiential kind of no. Gnosko um, is more intellectual. It's my understanding. But I think that gnosko even is used sometimes in uh, context where it implies experience. In the Hebrew Bible, there's only one word to know, and that is an experiential. Gnosko implies intimacy as well. I think in certain contexts. But I know the Oida does. Okay. Uh, this following thought reminds me of John 15 where he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And it's interesting, he gives the command to continue in his love, but first he says, so have I loved you. So he loves us first, and then he commands us to emulate what we've received. Right. And, and, and John reiterates that in uh, John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. That has to be the way it starts. We, we are incapable totally of this kind of transformation ourselves. Why would Jesus need to wait until this happens? The much time? 2,000 years? Almost 3,000 Why can't he just come and, not, and, not, and preempt the process? <clears throat> I think the fact that he hasn't come yet is um, is something beneficial for us because it's giving us more time to prepare. Because I know that where I am now is a lot different from where I was a couple years ago. And just as we can grow, we can help others grow. And we can help others see the light that we have and prepare more people. 
that God is, is waiting so that more people can be ready for when he does come. Some, some people have a problem with that. I, I agree with you. But some people have, are stressed over the fact that the longer he waits, the more people perish that aren't, aren't one to him. And so it's, it's like, who are, who are we waiting for? Uh, we're on Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24, somewhere around 44, 40, what was it? We started with uh, 36 to 44, um, talking about Jesus coming like a thief and, and what is he waiting for and, and so on. It's hard, you want, because does he wants a lot of people. Maybe he wants a lot of people, many. but he's losing as many as he, yeah. he's saving, or you know, is yeah. how does this work? So I think, in, in part, that's kind of deterministic language, so to speak, that because you're seeing people have an issue with um, him waiting, allows more, more people to perish. But then I know that also talks about how we're also, um, I can't remember which book, but describing the body of Christ and how we're like his hands and feet. So, so it's, like a, it's a call, more, it's really on us maybe that more people haven't... Because we're not demonstrating. We're not demonstrating. Yeah. You know, you've, you've hit on something very, very important that I think in doing evangelism and doing missions as a church, that is the one thing we, we tack it on to the end of the, okay, you need to do this and this and this and this. And then you also need to love people into the church because, you know, that'll win their hearts. It's, it's, we see it as a means to an end, but not the end itself. And it's time that we need to see it as the end. To become like Jesus, to model his love, is the end. It's, it's not the means to the end. It is the end itself. That's what we want to be. But I think there's more. Here's what I think the scenario is. If Jesus comes back, arbitrarily, just whenever he feels like it, as it were, And we haven't, and he doesn't have a people who really reflect the love of Jesus, of his love. It's, the earth isn't ready. He's coming back, and what he's going to do is lose a lot of people that potentially would be his friends if they got to know him. And so he's waiting for something to happen. And it's what I think Revelation pictures in Revelation 14, with the ripening of the wheat and the ripening of the grapes. Both good and evil have to mature to the point where they are fully fixed. And everybody has made up their mind. And, and the way that happens is simply by, first of all, finding a group of people who are wanting to be like Jesus, who are, are drinking of the, of the Father's love every day of their lives uh, and letting him love them and thus letting, letting that love flow through them to other people and then unleashing what people really want to do. And suddenly we're in this terrible crucible that's sounding terribly familiar in today's news of total violence and chaos. And we are in a situation where we, we either have to love our enemies or become like them. 
It's, it, there's no middle ground anymore. We either love them and forgive them, or we become like them. And when that point is reached, I call it the double J-curve. And you're not familiar with the J-curve because you're not in my generation. Uh, but uh, during the 70s and 80s, uh, they looked at population growth. And they discovered that at a certain level, when the population is, is growing and growing and growing, at a certain level, it explodes. So you have this gradual decline, uh, incline where you get more and more people on the planet, and then you get enough people that when they multiply, the population just explodes, and so you get a sharp peak like that. Uh, so you, you have this kind of effect. Uh, we call it the J-curve. Um, that, it's a double J-curve because both good and evil exponentially do that. And so the, the more... The more violent and the more wicked, the more, the more we suffer at the hands of the violent, the more we have opportunities to forgive them and to reflect them. And, and what is going to happen in our world, and I'm just kind of waiting for it to happen, is that as violence increases, people in the name of God are going to counter violence in order to try to protect themselves, in order to save life, in order to um, maintain justice. And, and they're, so they're going to be part of that whole mix of violence. And then they're going to turn on anyone who doesn't want to be violent, who wants to be loving and Christ-like and forgiving. And that's the crucible at which the truth about God can be stated and demonstrated with the greatest clarity of all time. Even greater than when Jesus was here. Because if God has a group of people who are like Jesus at that time, he has then that, the models, he has Jesus' hands and feet everywhere doing things. And so he has Jesus on this planet as it were in the person in the body of Jesus and against that darkness of violence and everything we come to the point where the truth can be fully and clearly most revealed so that when Jesus comes back nobody's running for home base they're all home either for good or with evil does, does that make sense? Give me some feedback. It goes back to the verse that says, let the, let the just be just still, let the pure be pure still, let the impure be pure still. Yeah. Just that, that's what I'm getting from you, that at the end of time, everyone is going to be decided on either I'm for Christ or I'm against Christ. There's no people that are like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to see what happens. But, but keep in mind, many people who are against Jesus think they're for him. Mm-hmm. Their Jesus is a different kind of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so we have to keep that straight. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be very confusing. Mm-hmm. The scripture that I'm reminded of by a comment you made was the, tri- the trying of our faith work is patience. You know? yeah. yeah. And you mentioned this in the example of the more uh, persecution or uh, affliction, perhaps, that we're under mistreatment, then the more opportunities we have to 
develop the develop the forgiveness of Jesus. Unattractive as that scripture might seem, or you know, unappealing as it may be to our to us, it's that is what it says, and it is very helpful to. I I tell you, there is no more powerful force against becoming a victim of someone else's cruelty than to love them. Right. I have I have a situation right now uh, that is very trying with someone in the community who I guess it's annoying more than anything. Um, and, and the sooner I just say, oh, I forgive him for that and go, move on, I've, I've dumped it back in his yard in a sense. I, have, I refuse to own it. I refuse to carry it around. I refuse to let it. Yeah, I'm free of it. And I can move on with my life. Um, yeah, that's kind of that keeping cold to fire on your head thing. You know, I was thinking, you're saying, and I remember when the first time it really hit me, Emilio Connect, I remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was in that difficult time in the 80s and 70s, and he was saying, when you face injustice, it is your greatest opportunity to show the character and love of God. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so foreign to Americanism. Americanism, <laughs> we defend ourselves, we defend justice. You know, justice. And it's, it is, it's taken this non-violent um, returning to free evil, which is not a popular thing. I remember he got a lot of criticism for that at that time. And he, he held his ground. And, and it's kind of what you're saying. That is the most powerful returning good for evil. Yeah, and and that, to me, that is the only thing that's going to make things really clear. And, and God is after clarity. He's, he, he's not going to come back when we're still confused, running back and forth and not knowing what we're doing and not knowing who he is. He's going to wait until the truth about himself has been made totally clear. And that's the only way it can. Uh, back to what you were saying, Matthew. Uh, if you look at the third angel's message, the very last verse, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus that gives us the ingredients we need to get through the last days. First of all, endurance. And that's, that's hard. And you can't endure it without the other two qualities. You can't, you can't get the patience without the other two qualities. The next one is keep the commandments. And as we pointed out, Jesus climaxes the, his discussion on the commandments with love your enemies. That's the only way to really keep the commandments. If you really love your enemies, you're not going to do all the other things he talks about. Right. Adultery, murder, what have you. They're all taken care of. And I think that's the problem we haven't, as Adventists, we have not looked at the Ten Commandments in that way. We have looked at it solely as uh, things to do, sins to be shunned, and deeds to be done, and something external. That's not where it is at all. So to keep the, t- the commandments uh, is to love our enemies, and then to trust in Jesus, or trust in the Father as Jesus did, or to have his kind of faith. Uh, that he, in, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. To have that kind of trust, that's, those three things are the way we get through. And it really behooves, I mean, each of us, we each need to draw near to Christ. 
I imagine. And he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire and white raiment. So it goes to draw yeah, near to have, Christ. We don't get the real trust until we're on a perilous journey. Uh, that's when we start trusting in, in a way we couldn't any other way. But, but to me, and I, I can't stress this enough, we can't look at what we must do in this paradigm. We have to seek what God is like and let his love draw us. Once we put ourselves, what we must do, our focus is on our performance, whether it's to love, whether it's to, uh, whether it's to uh, behave appropriately, in every situation, whatever it is, it's our performance. And then we're worshiping ourselves. It's when we put God front and center and our total focus and our preoccupation is what is he like? What is his character? And drinking that in experientially, not just intellectually. You know, Jane, I think the common between those two things, you try to do right performance and it's that self-centered thing. But this other stuff you're talking about, you look back on your own experience. When you're in that zone, I kind of call it like a zone, where you have that, where the Spirit of God is flowing through you. But it, it, it's a gift, and he, he, he gives you that gift. Remember I started teaching high school in the 70s? Man, I had a rough group. And I'd walk in the morning, and some kid would mouth off about my Bible class. <laughs> and you know, you say, mm, I want to defend myself. And I'd say... I had this text that would change my heart. Ezekiel, you know, uh, says, take out my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Says, Lord Jesus, just fill me with your spirit today. And he just do it. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those, where, but it isn't something that I can conjure up. I have good genetics, so I'm a nicer person. Well, you might have my easier than some other person, but it's that, that constant being in that zone of downloading his presence. That's the only thing that makes it's his goodness, it's not our goodness. <laughs> it, it's really, it is really, we are creatures of response, and what we have done is, is actually rewire our brains to not be creatures of response, but to be creatures of control. Right. We want to control things. We want to get it our way. We want to do it ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but we're creatures by nature of response to respond to rather than to control. Remember, remember Detteran, Dr. Detteran? Yeah. He said there's only two issues. It's either my way or God's way. He's, everything boils down to that. You know, am I going to, is that doing it or I'm in charge or I'm letting him? Yeah. So if that's the case, then when Jesus warns us that he's going to come and it's going to seem like a thief, if he shows up, unexpectedly he shows up unexpectedly because we're not looking for him we're not caring about his things we're preoccupied with life and believe me that is our biggest I think that's our biggest hindrance to being ready for Jesus to come and not recognizing what our state is Revelation in the preceding verse he says that thou art poor, wretched, miserable, blind and naked do you know the best way to recognize that, the only way to really recognize that, is by seeing his love. 
It is by his love that we see ourselves as we really are. Unclean and unworthy and, and all of those things. Jean, can I ask you personally, you know, when talking about whether it's devotional time, whether it's personal worship time, whether it's claiming promises, with you, how do you sense that change? I mean, on a very daily practical way, you're, like, you're, you're, it's kind of a change within you where your spirit changes. Well, let me tell you, in the, when I get really busy, that's when I'm in my greatest danger. Because I, I tend to lose that, a little bit of that contact. Uh, and so what we have to do in the evening is, is reconnect. And, and prayer, for me, prayer is opening up my heart to God and, and just telling Him what hurts and, and where I need healing and, and, and things I shouldn't have done that I did and, and that kind of thing. And, and just, but it, it, because I know Him the way I do, I know I'm free to do that without feeling shamed, without feeling put down with guilt. I mean, to me, coming to repentance, and this goes back to, to when I first got to know God, I came to repentance that night. And, and it was the most joyful experience of my life. You know, it wasn't this, oh, I, I grew up with the other kind of repentance. Uh, Laurelwood Academy, we could speak some prayer. Uh, and, and I was only an elementary kid, but on Sabbath morning, you know, the preacher would just try to get an altar call and, and pummel everybody with guilt. Every sermon was on sin and how bad we were. And uh, I, there would be weeping and, and coming forward, and, and it, always, it always felt like gloom and doom to me. Just the, the, the other kind of repentance was, to me, it was gloom and doom, and, and there was no joy and no peace and, no, and nothing with it. And so I, you can imagine my surprise when I came to repentance there at the foot of the cross the day I was converted. It was just joyful. Uh, it was like, and I, I still find that my greatest moments of repentance I, I realized that I'm getting rid of something that I just, was just hurting me. Why was I ever carrying that thing around? Yeah. So it's really, um, for me, it's, it's, it's trying to connect to God with everything, to talk to Him kind of throughout the day um, about, about the things that concern me about the things that trouble me and, and, and to, to breathe a prayer when a student walks into my office that God show me what to say help, you know, help me with this situation and he always does I mean I, you know, I, there are just a billion t- of times that you know, God has done that for me and every class to ask him to take charge of that class and to use me and, and the other day I was teaching Kings and Conquest and I knew that we were going to come to this this problem of Elisha and the she-bears and Elijah slaying 450 prophets of Baal and, and I, was, I was sitting there what, during the oral presentation and saying, God, would you please give me an answer for this? <laughs> he did. Yeah. He did. And, a, and a, a new way of explaining it that I'd never thought of before. Uh, it's, it's a walk. It's an abiding. It's and it isn't, it isn't that I manufactured it. If I were to try to manufacture that relationship, 
I would be repressing my emotions and repressing everything. And then at some moment that I was tested, I would fall flat on my face. Because I, I've been there, done that. You, you talk about the, the repentance and submitting to, uh, instead of hanging on the control, I had a crazy week and we went through this thing with my youngest daughter and I was just freaking out. And then I got this pocket call middle of the night and it scared the wits out of me for her safety and and so I'm going through this, you know, and and finally it's says, Lord God, you know, it's this you know, I tried to raise her, you made her, you keep her alive, she is yours. I just commit her to you and I just thank you for what you know, where you're submitting all that control. You wonder that parent what do you, you, know, you can't control a twenty nine year old anyway. <laughs> you know, it's just, they're gone. You know? But you're you're scared and you're worried, but you, you find when you finally submit it and you give it, and I could go to sleep. I actually went to sleep usually I'll you know, roll and toss all night. You know? And I'm, I'm a, I'll make up all kinds of wild scenarios that have nothing to do with reality. I, I have totally I totally understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Scare myself to death, you know. <laughs> And uh, I need the Lord, you know, say just uh, my favorite promise passage, Jesus, is I have uh, a thousand ways to take care of you, which you know nothing of. Yeah. So always, play, you know, praying that over my kids. And those, those who make the servicing honor of God supreme will find perplexities vanish on a plain path before their feet. That's the rest of that passage. Yeah. You know, Gene, that is what I was not taught growing up all the way through. And I think most of us, we didn't catch that. No one explained the inner working of the intimacy with God's stuff. Say, so how do you find that? How do you experience that? How do you, what's that joy like? Or what, you know, we teach all the systems and structure. I know you struggle with that. I struggle with that, yeah. And and unfortunately, in survey Old Testament classes, there isn't time uh, to be able to do that. uh, I'm actually hoping to develop a new course in which that might be a little more possible. I think... I think one place we have to start is with our our preoccupation with externalism. Yeah. Yeah. Because that... That's the Tower of Babel story. The, the, whole, the whole Babylonian model was external. Uh, we manufactured our value. We manufactured uh, control. We manufactured uh, the way to keep, to keep our property safe. I'm talking about economics, kingship, and law. Uh, we manufactured all of these external ways of, of trying to manage things and to protect ourselves. It's all about self-protection. And when Jesus said that he who loses his life shall save it, that is where I have to live my life. And that's a, that's a piece I've not really stated. That I have to be willing to abandon myself to be hurt and to stop protecting myself. That's when God can use me to the most is when I'm willing to stick my neck out and say things that I know are going to be offensive and regardless of the consequences. Um, Self-preservation. 
Self-preservation is, and that's where we lose our humanity, is right at that level, because it, it, we even teach it on flights. Yeah. You, you save yourself first, and then your child. Yeah, right. Well, I can see the prin reason for the principle, if you die, your child isn't going to get saved anyway. But I, I, think, I think we have uh, really looked at this way, way too much in our selfish lens, and we have baptized that as our religion. That we're really doing what God wants us to do, but we're the ones doing it. And that's got to stop. I don't know, and in terms of how to teach this, it's almost how to catch this. Yeah, but values are not taught, they're caught all the research. So I think this is a, a deep value. Yeah. <laughs> That's why Jesus didn't, you know, okay, take these ten courses and be my disciple, come follow me. They caught it. They saw it. They, they finally absorbed Oh, I mean, it took them a while. And, and it took the crucible, the crucifixion, and, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit to really yeah, catch it. It really did. And it, and it was when they were in their most humble state of recognizing how they failed Jesus and how they did nothing but let him down. That then they realized, well, you know, we can't do it. Jesus said, without him, I can do nothing. And if Jesus said that, and he's perfect, he's sinless, what about us? Of course, <laughs> that's true for us. But what I what I found, and this is the the hard part, we're so we're so self centered by nature that that we get a hold of one piece of it. Like without him, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. We get a hold of one piece, and we dwell on that one piece. Okay, without him, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I. <laughs> and and we lose that holistic thing. That without him, I can do nothing. And it's the him that has to be our focus. It's, this is not a mechanical kind of process, a checklist kind of process. Uh, now I do this, now I do that, formulate kind of process. It's a relationship. It really is. And I, I think, Gene, there's a dimension, like you say, like the Pentecostal the Spirit is poured out. Where I've seen this the most radical is in a revival. I had a kid named Nadim in, in, in Glendale. His dad was a head heart surgeon in Beirut, Lebanon. So during the middle of that war, he always carried two hand grenades and an Uzi, and he'd killed many people. And here he is in my school, my high school kid. The, the kid has kid yeah. killed many? So we had I was thinking it was the father. We had, we had this powerful revival where the Spirit of God just showed up. And he was walking home, and uh, we couldn't wear certain colored jackets because of the gangs and stuff and Pasadena and some of that. So he, and he comes running back into my office, and he says, and he's walking down the street, and these kids started yelling profanities at him, and he says, Bless you! Bless you! <laughs> <laughs> he kept running back into my office. I was a principal. 
And he says, Mr. Ammon, what happened to me? What happened to me? He says, normally I would just come. <laughs> and he says, Jesus has come into your heart. You know, here's this brand new Christian, like hours, days old, where the Spirit of God, he accepted. And the Spirit of God just came in. And you know, we don't, but we think, we look at the end of time, what happened. When the Spirit of God, I've only seen little windows of that, where that is showing up. But that is powerful stuff. And see, I, that's something we haven't talked about is, is the latter rain. What we, what we call the latter rain is when the Spirit of God is poured out and, and people's lives are transformed and, and powerfully testifying to the love of God because it's filling their lives. And, and that's part of what makes this double J-curve so powerful because, because now you see the dark and you see the light and they're in separate total contrast. Well, we need to close. Let's have prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we, we can only come to you as we are. Jesus said, those who come to me, I will never cast out. And so we come this morning, just as we are, knowing that you will never leave us the way we are, but that you will transform us, that you will show us yourself, reveal yourself to us. And I pray that for each of us, that you will reveal yourself to us as never before, that you will fill us with your spirit, and that you will enable us to empty ourselves of all the blocks and all of the self-righteousness and all of the self-serving uh, and, and preservation that we tend to go through and let us experience you and then reveal you to others as you will lead us to do. We thank you in Jesus' name.